Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. Graduate turnover has reached its highest level in more than a decade. We'll work out what's going on there. Uh, We've been talking about university staffing on the site this week. Happy has a new report out on China. And I've been crunching some numbers on student financial support. It's all coming up. There is always a them and us kind of attitude that comes out that has diminished. But there's still very much this sense that work goes on in silos. And when things aren't, when people aren't happy, it's always the middle. It's always the centre that's the problem. And this this trope about, um, you know, you just employ lots of administrators. It doesn't really help. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to help us get across this week's developments, as usual, three terrific guests. Uh, In Chester, Helen O'Sullivan is Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at the University of Chester. Helen, your highlight of the week, please. Well, my highlight for the last seven days was undoubtedly graduation last week. And if I can cheat, it was last week, but it was within the last seven days. So it was my, my first graduation ceremony since moving to Chester, and the first few ceremonies we had last week were to celebrate the achievements of our fabulous health and social care students who all finished in the first lockdown and so there were students one minute and then they were practitioners in a global pandemic the next the weather was fabulous Chester Cathedral was resplendent and the whole event was just a pure joy Fantastic, fantastic. And in York, Pete Quinn is an independent higher education consultant. Pete, your highlight of the week, please. Well, if we're going seven days, given that pretty much every project this week has been impacted by COVID, I'm going to go back to last Friday. I was in the XL doing a talk um, at Head by Bet, and I got to see my brother in real life for the first time in about 18 months. And it was quite pleasant, actually. (laughs) Excellent. And in Winchester, David Kernahan is Wonky's associate editor. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Well, on Wednesday, the OECD's Andreas Schleicher spoke to the Commons Education Committee, and I didn't watch it. (laughs) And on that bombshell. uh, Yes, we start this week with Graduate Jobs. The Institute of Student Employers has published its annual student development survey. Pete, what is it telling us? The ISA has gone around 107 organisations, and they've looked very particularly at early career recruitment. And there's a real focus on uh, soft skills from recruiters. That includes um, positive thinking, adaptability. Um, Collaboration was a really big theme. And I think that's a really important consideration when we're thinking about inclusive teaching and learning, group work, and giving people the skills to go out into the world and work collaboratively and digitally. Helen, this is interesting, isn't it? Because um, you can probably argue that some of these soft skills really require kind of you know, in-person attendance, don't they? Well, you certainly can argue that. I mean, you know, I've spent a lot of my time um, evangelising for fully online courses in my career. And we did, you know, I have I have been involved in online courses. 
where the sort of social constructivist and the social learning model was really in the forefront and where students did learn some of these softer skills around collaboration and communication and creativity and and emotional intelligence. Um, But I have to say that the pandemic has really brought home to everybody the importance of in-person activity and the importance of uh, us as social beings. You know, humans are, are social animals. And one of the things that most people missed the most during all the lockdowns was that social interaction. So I think I think this is, as with a lot of things to do with the pandemic, what I think this report highlights is a number of things that were going on, um, um, you know, before the pandemic have been accelerated by, by everything that we've gone through. So those, um, those key core competencies, uh, that, you know, that you get by having a, a social learning approach to university education where collaboration, co-creation, problem solving, you know, working with academics, working with employers to, to really create those more sort of authentic um, types of assessment and learning models. That is the sort of education that we really need to put our energies in, helping students to really understand where they're developing those skills. Um, and, and you know, one of the, I suppose it's... Um, uh, you know, we didn't we didn't want the lockdown, did we? We didn't want the pandemic. But one of the side benefits of students learning to work remotely is learning to work with others in that setting. And the report highlights that employers are looking for those skills. And I think also the ability to work effectively in an online environment takes a lot of different skills. And uh, far from you know, junking everything that we've done through the pandemic, we should be really helping our students to focus on how they're developing those skills. So I thought this was a good rapport. Um, as I say, I think it's accelerating the some of the things that we that we've all been working on before the pandemic. DK, you've uh, you've written on the site this week about the um, some of the revised subject benchmark statements from QAA. And with all the will in the world, I don't recall any of them talking about emotional intelligence and self-awareness. Um, well, then you've not read them, have you? Because they do. <laughs> uh, they've uh, brought in a lot more language on inclusivity, on support and on these kind of soft skills. People do think of the subject benchmark statements as these kind of really bold statements of what um, a course should contain. It's almost like an, um, a national curriculum for uh, uh, higher education if you actually really want to scare people. But it's not like that at all. It's a lot broader than that. And in a lot of these statements, they were at their uh, launch yesterday afternoon and listening to people from uh, uh, classics, the uh, classics subject area talking about the way in which they prepare graduates and the way in which they've expanded the curriculum and uh, changed the curriculum. It's marvellous stuff, and I could talk about subject benchmarks all day, but I won't. There was a thing in this report I really liked that I want to talk about, which was a focus on the graduate development uh, programmes, the stuff that employers do for graduates who are just joining the workforce. Uh, 98% of employers that were questioned, I think it was about 40-odd employers, as you say, uh, they are focusing on teaching their graduates commercial awareness and the job-specific technical skills they need to do the role. But they're also working on stuff like uh, self-awareness and uh, presentation skills, which is really interesting. I think there's um, a mindset in policymaking at the moment that we see the graduate as um, 
a finished article that will immediately slot into a high-performing uh, graduate career and will complete the graduate outcomes survey accordingly. But in reality, there's a um, training and uh, uh, development and skill support continue all the way through the early part of uh, the career. And it's great to see a report that's actually focusing on the employer angle of this rather than uh, the um, university angle. Sorry, I was just going to say, in medical education, where I spent much of my um, career, emotional intelligence, empathy, these sorts of things, they were they were clearly on the curriculum, and, and a lot of research was done on on how to how to develop educational activities that really um, promoted those sorts of qualities. So I think I think in some areas that has been on the agenda for a number of years. Mm. Pete, the other thing that I thought was interesting, perhaps not surprising, is the stuff on mental health. So um, 61% of employers reporting demand for mental health support increasing during the pandemic and 9 in 10 reporting uh, that they've been providing more mental health support and counselling for, for new hires. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, that is bound to mirror what's going on within universities and other routes into employment. But uh, there was a, a focus on the need for kind of positive thinking and, and adaptability. Um, but you're absolutely right that the, the mental health um, angle spoke very strongly in this report. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, particularly in a global pandemic with all that uncertainty. I think it was one of the first things that most organizations went to is to go back to their employer assistance program and promote it and make sure that people knew what it was for and how to interact with it. But I think to as a protective factor against those difficulties, we need to think about cultural intelligence as well. Um, there's a very international dynamic. You know, we'll be touching on that later in terms of whether students want to work within the UK or in a, in a more international environment. And there is a lot of cultural intelligence required, which kind of mirrors some of that self-awareness um, and um, how you come across, how you present, and how you um, interact with with differing colleagues um, in a working environment, whether that's digitally or in person. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Ailsa Crum, Director of Membership, Quality Enhancement and Standards at QAA. This week, I've been blogging about our latest set of subject benchmark statements. These statements are produced by the subject communities to provide a picture of what graduates in a particular subject discipline might reasonably be expected to know, do and understand at the end of their studies. As well as outlining the nature of study in each discipline, our latest set of statements address some of the wider social justice concerns that higher education institutions face, specifically equality, accessibility, sustainability and enterprise and entrepreneurship. Developing inclusive learning communities is a process of cultural change and takes time. It includes developing teaching and learning environments that reflect subject communities' distinctive approaches with the aim of creating an inclusive experience for students, whatever their starting point and irrespective of the subject they are studying. We believe the subject benchmark statements are an important contribution to securing academic standards, being transparent about the nature of study in each discipline, and they also have a role to play in helping to transform the learning experience of students and from there improving society as a whole. So we're very ambitious for these new statements. Now, last week, UCU published a report that said two thirds of university staff are considering leaving the sector in the next five years. And this week, we've been focusing on staff on the site. Helen, what do we need to know? Well, I think, I mean, the report was um, 
you know, I read the report and, and it was really sad to hear those individual stories. Um, and I, I suppose there's no doubt that our staff have had a very tough few years. Um, I mean, universities had to change their entire business model over a weekend. And the ones who really bore the brunt of this often had to manage all of that whilst working at their kitchen tables or in their spare room, you know, worried about elderly relatives with small children running around. And, and at Chester, many were also in schools or hospitals or the police, social workers as part of their professional practice. So that was, you know, an added layer of stress and uncertainty for them. And and there's no doubt that there's been, you know, an erosion of the unit of resource, fluctuating student numbers across the sector, which sometimes is a, you know, you have a lot of students and that's stressful. You don't have enough students and that's stressful. And the demands of the COVID pandemic has, has really stretched resources and bandwidth. So, Added to that, this series of long-running disputes over pay, casualisation, the pension, you know, it's not surprising that we're seeing a lot of burnout and distress. And there've been some, there's been some great articles on, on the site this week. Um, and, you know, obviously I'm a, a deputy vice chancellor, so I've bought into the concept that universities need to be managed. And I think there are, there are several drivers, but for me, what I think about is the financial drivers and the regulatory drivers. And, the the article on the site from the group at SOAS, I think, made a lot of great points about the financial situation. And I also liked their concept of this social pact because we can't just be constantly fighting each other um, in in universities when the the big the issues are bigger and we need to do something about those. Um, there was also a lot of commentary about the Alison Wolf and Andrew Jenkins reports that concluded that there's been a significant increase in professional services staff. And, and this was characterised in the SOAS piece as, you know, across the board, university high, high tranches of administrators. And I, I just don't see it's very constructive to think about professional services staff as faceless bureaucrats. I'm sure that wasn't the intention of the article, but there is that them and us um, thing that can happen and can poison some of these discussions. And all the professional staff I've ever known have been really proud to work in their university and can clearly articulate, you know, the difference they're making to students' lives and to the local communities. And a lot of these colleagues have been brought in because they're necessary for us to support us in meeting the increasing burden of, of, of regulation and you know, the um, Mary Stewart, who always talks a lot of sense, she was talking about, you know, how we've increased the number of staff around student experience. But but we have, this is as a direct result for increasingly being required to take into universities activities that would have previously been firmly the work of other public services. And just to illustrate that with two things. So responding to sexual violence and supporting students through mental health crisis and providing ongoing support. Now, of course, both of those are critical activities and I do welcome our increasing role in those. But we can't investigate claims of sexual violence or support students with increasingly complex mental health needs and um, without employing highly specialised and well-qualified professional service colleagues. Mm. Yes, now DK, you might have a, a thought on that. I mean, you know, you know I, 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 I did think the, you know, the SOAS piece was interesting because I guess we're used to a kind of tone from UCU, which turns its fire on vice-chancellors. And, you know, this was an example of 
uh, you know, kind of vice chancellors and trade unionists turning their fire on government. But the the line in there that I thought was, I don't know, to you know, to kind of reflect on what Helen's just been saying, kind of controversial, was this idea. I mean, the the, the line was across the board: universities hired tranches of administrators to look after all these consumer students in the newly marketised sector, while slashing teaching staff costs. Is that a fair a- allegation? Well, um, in short, it's not. No, um, it's not. It's just not, that's not what has happened. Um, if you look at staffing numbers, there has been a growth in non-academic staff numbers. Not all of these are administrators. Um, as Helen uh, points out, the increasing un- uh, number of things universities have to do and the increasing number of things universities need to report on having done uh, means that we need people to do those things and to report on them. There's absolutely no sense in asking um, a researcher to um, actually do um, a HESA return if they've got a spare 10 minutes or something like that. You know, I mean, if we are going to do these things, we need people to do them. And to me, um, it's always been a weakness in staff campaigning in universities that it, it does quite quickly descend into this um us. I mean, happily in previous years, it's recruited, it's um, retreated a little bit. The uh, current UC, um, U approach is really inclusive. They think about all the staff at a university, and I really, really welcome that. But it does creep um, back in in occasion, and it just, it's hugely unhelpful. Mm. And then, and, and and Pete, t- t- just just tell us a little bit about this 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 concept of this sort of integrated practitioner, this kind of third space thing. Well, it's, I do a bit of work with Emily McIntosh at uh, Middlesex University, and I think it's it kind of touches on what's been covered so far. So you may have mental health practitioners who've got a particular role because the NHS is um, entrenched, but you, you've got people who are working in that space between what was called administration and what's called academia. Um, and it's doing a lot of collaborative work and working on projects and working with people to enhance not just the student experience, but they give the people the space to do research, to do innovative projects. Learning technologists and other technologists are really key people now. And as we've seen, the people who've, who've worked well in that area have um, done really well in the pandemic in terms of teaching. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I, I think there's a, um, there is a, always a them and us kind of attitude that comes out that has diminished, but there's still very much this sense that work goes on in silos and when things aren't, when people aren't happy, it's always the middle, it's always the centre that's the problem. And this, this trope about, um, you know, you just employ lots of administrators, it doesn't really help. I, I totally agree with the idea that it's a, about a collaborative effort and there's a lot of collegiality going on. And if you think about doctoral training centres, for example, there's huge amounts of people that I suppose HESA would code as administrators. But I, I've been encountering a lot of um, people who work in there as part of a project I'm working on, and they're so passionate um, and engaged in the research and the support of the doctoral researchers and the academics who um, are developing those research skills. Um, it's it's really hard to kind of um, think that, that this is at the cost of teaching. I think it's it's underpins the the institution rather than diminishes it. Helen, there's 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 a bunch of you know, providers on the office for you know in England in the on the office for students register that probably aren't doing lots of these kind of relatively specialised roles. These kind of extra things. How 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 much of this is 
you know, kind of a general requirement, how much of this is about universities kind of having to compete with each other to show that they offer all of these different things? How much of it is, you know, statutory expectations? How To, to what extent could universities choose to, you know, kind of reduce their spend on anything other than academics? You know, is it possible? Mm, that's an interesting one. I mean, I think that one way is... Um, that to see um, professional colleagues or third space colleagues is taking some of the burden, the workload off academics. I mean, DK mentioned that about you know you, you wouldn't ask a, a researcher to to do some of you know some of these particular jobs, and I think that. Um, you know, the, the, the learning technologist is a really interesting one. I'm um, at ALTS, the Association for Learning Technology, where I'm chair of the Board of Trustees. We've seen a significant increase in those colleagues moving into central positions and into leadership positions. And I think we're starting to see a little bit of a trend of colleagues from that sort of background moving into what you might call more traditionally academic leadership positions, such as PVC education, those sorts of backgrounds. So, so that's a really interesting development. But I think in terms of what we choose to focus on my fundamentally my my belief is that academic colleagues should be able to focus on the core business of education research and knowledge exchange and you know within that there's a there's a wide mix of activities and we should reward what we value in in promotions criteria so that people um behavior you know isn't skewed to things that are 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 valued through those criteria um and I suppose one area where we start to we could start to reduce is is to think about how we've constructed our entire quality assurance processes over the last twenty five years in response to the QAA. And there was there's a lot of processes that go on in universities that are very much a product of that QAA. Uh, sort of mindset and the office of students is different it's looking at different things it's looking at outcomes particularly and what i would be cautious about is that we we don't layer another whole load of regulatory burden on top of what we already have and and certainly one of the things i'm interested in doing and we're looking at at chester is is a radical relook at how we do things like course um evaluation how we do things like approval of programs how we look at quality monitoring because it's we need to have a different approach to, to look at that different lens from the office of students we need to get rid of some of those other processes so i think we we as leaders it is incumbent on us to be continually looking at processes and the burden of bureaucracy for want of a better word on academic colleagues so that they are you know freed up as much as possible to to do the things that they came into the job for dk in the end this is all about the unit of resource right that's exactly what it uh, comes uh, down to if um universities are taking in less money per student uh as they will be because of the uh, fee freeze in England, then they are going to have less money to pay staff at the wages uh, they deserve. Um, they will have to take on more students even to stand still to be able to keep wages at um, a reasonable level linked to inflation in some way, which means that terms and uh, conditions will uh, worsen. Um and there will be, and I can confidently predict this, there will be increasingly onerous regulatory requirements, which means that we need to re 
employ different kinds of staff to do different jobs that we didn't do uh, previously. It's not a great time to work in a university. It's also not a great time to manage a university. And it is uh, difficult to see a way forward that uh, results in a happy ending at this point. There are going to be um, three to four years at least of further uh, cost-cutting of of uh, declines in terms of conditions, in decline in staffing, and uh, um, a worsening student experience. And this, as the authors from SOAS argued, is a deliberate pl- um, political uh, choice, which is why the we really need to be holding the uh, uh, government to account on this rather than shouting at academics or administrators or senior leaders isn't there something though about the massive pace of change as well and these kind of you know and social media um, communications digital inclusion digital skills well-being you know in in a proactive sense rather than a reactive sense there's lots of different um, jobs roles and support that is, is required in, in a, a more recent times than wasn't the case before. Uh, great. Now, next up, a new report from HEPI argues that the UK needs strategic investment in a deeper understanding of Chinese language and culture, reflecting the importance of China in the modern world. DK, this is uh, an interesting one. It certainly is. Uh, there has been, um, there's almost a developing literature of reports that say, China is this big important thing. We don't know very much about it in the UK. We should probably do something about that. And if even in the, the HEPI publication itself, there is a huge amount of quotations from other reports about this that are like, um, Britain is currently deeply underpowered on China expertise. When we've not got enough people studying Chinese languages. We don't know enough about Chinese society, history and uh, culture. And um, yet we need to make these big decisions about this economically important uh, major player in uh, global trade, which um, we also have significant concerns about uh, human rights and uh, freedom of expression and a number of other um, environmental and other practices that we are unhappy with. So uh, the paper essentially argues that we should learn more about uh, China, that this should start at the school level. It makes that um, um, typical education uh, report mistake of saying, okay, we should have a defined time in the uh, 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 curriculum to do this, to learn about uh, China. And I think it was Laura, um, Laura McKinnery who's actually uh, designed a timetable that was comprised entirely of these lessons that report said that every school should do once a week and actually managed to fill the entire week of timetable. And there's a lot of stuff about student uh, demand as well, um, looking into why students are not choosing to learn about China at university, why the, the number of departments that are doing Chinese studies, which can, uh, combines all of the various Chinese languages, although we tend to focus on Mandarin, and all of the Chinese cultural and uh, political and historical uh, factors that uh, make it um 
a very different uh, country to those that those of us in the West are used to. So I think this is it's really good to see this discussion being put forward. Um, uh, there's been a lot of criticism in the media and from, from various government sources about universities' involvements in China and reliance on, on international students and particularly in Chinese students and the threats, you know, the threats that we're all familiar with around security, cyber security in particular and, and what have you. I think the, the recommendations for universities are really interesting in this report and that it is, I think that idea of being sort of China competent and understanding China is a really good way of looking at it. Um, we have to understand China and develop those competencies, perhaps without accepting some of the obvious constraints that working with Chinese institutions pose in an uncritical way. You know, the, I think there's tended to be a sort of, well, if we want to do business with China, we have to put up with all the with all the problems. And, and one of the recommendations, you know, suggests universities should publish clear guidance and considerations for concerning um, internationalisation with academic freedoms and, and what have you, transparency around donations. This is really difficult territory. I mean, the, that's a, that's quite an easy thing to write, but a very difficult thing to do. But I think this this report is is welcome and it will help with with those with those debates. It feels a bit too late, actually, um, given that China's been a pretty emerging power for a good number of years, and I think it's it's switched in the last three or four years to becoming a lot more authoritarian, repressive compared to where it was. I was in Hong Kong in November two thousand nineteen. Um, amid the uprising because I was about to deliver a course there which was partially delayed by that and and Hong Kong as an example of, of how it's changed its relationship to China is just absolutely dramatic you may have seen in the news there's a couple of UK high court judges who've withdrawn from there but I think there is a, a real uh, challenge and it and some of it comes out of ignorance but I did some work with Chinese students at the University of York a few years back, um, and, and York has a, a, a massive Chinese population in terms of the diversity of the city. It's probably the biggest non-English grouping um, in, in the small city of York. And Chinese students were coming for an international experience to meet with um, students of all nationalities, experience kind of British culture, um, get really engaged in, in, in British life, and weren't really achieving that given that most of their classmates were also from China, albeit maybe different regions or different aspects of China but there does need to be a huge amount of knowledge and, and some of the work I do now is in a kind of more con commercial context with international teams and um, the difference between how um, Chinese colleagues operate with Korean colleagues Japanese colleagues and US colleagues and that's a real challenge and it's back to that idea of cultural intelligence I think and that we need a bit more of an outgoing um, perspective this British exceptionalism that kind of weaves through a lot of of things and potentially un underpins Brexit and some of these will be all right kind of ideas that we are still this global power, I think has given us this this sense of that the British Council, for example, and the soft power that's so important that, that, that we're so well known for that's ebbing away uh, is really significant. So I think we really need to know um, where our status is in the world, where our position in the world and where China are coming from, because I don't think they're necessarily coming from a space that they were four or five years ago. Um, and, and there's some great academics doing work on that, but I think it shows the paucity of approach that, that you get um, uh, just one or two who are always called on to commentate on, on China, including uh, in the foreword for this report, you know, um, 
there's a, there's a, a great academic in Oxford, but there was also Peter Frankopan who's done some great stuff around the Silk Road and and China. Um, my kids are really engaged in China because I've 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 helped them to do so, but it's certainly not through their school curriculum. Now it's time for yes, but does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question live is Wonky's associate editor David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that absolutely does own a Kia Rio. This week's education question is a perennial in our education. Everybody knows that the staff-student ratio varies by provider and subject. But is the idea that more students need more staff the best predictor of variation? If you plot academic staff, FTE, excluding atypicals, against total student FTE for all uh, cost centres at every university in the UK... Does it correlate? So for all the reasons we were discussing earlier about how you calculate what is, um, you know, academic staff and professional staff and the amount of third space staff that might be um, dealing with those bigger numbers, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, no, it doesn't correlate. Yeah, I'm going to join in with that. Um, Given that HESA doesn't capture the data as effectively as it might, as was acknowledged in that that report, I think it probably is the case that it doesn't correlate. Uh, And the answer is yes, there is a medium correlation, or as David Hulse at Kiel University would have it, a medium coefficient of determinate. R squared is 0.597, and again, especially for David Hulse, that the value of p is greater than 0.0001, which means it's pretty reliable. So what fascinates me here is the other thing that predicts the uh, minor variation around the lines of best fit. You might remember back last year, I did these wonky groupings as a consultation. They're the colours you see in the graphs, like um, yellow, pink, mint, whatever, to mark similar providers. If you look at the graph, uh, the group that a university in is a very good predictor of the staff-student ratio. And I would strongly urge you to look at the graph, because you can look at the staff-student um, ratio at in every cost centre in any um, university in isolation. So the data is from the HESA staff record and the HESA student record, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, as well as maintenance loans, part-time jobs and money from families, students do get some help from bursaries and hardship funds, and we've crunched some numbers on what's been given out in recent years. Pete, what do they tell us? Well, they tell us that universities tend to offer in, in sort of four distinct areas um they give accommodation discounts they give a sort of voucher or alternate to cash um area uh, they give cash um and they also give other benefits and um it's it's kind of a, a not spoken about very often um potentially uh, area of study so everyone's very conscious of tuition fee levels but really aren't aware of what it actually costs or what you might get as a benefit from studying at a university, and 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 Helen, this stuff, um, you know, this stuff could 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 really matter in a, in a cost of living crisis in a way that perhaps it it hasn't so much in recent years. Absolutely, I think that you know there is this sort of perception in the media that uh, students are all sort of from um, rich middle class backgrounds, but there are there are significant numbers of students who are in support who are in receipt receipt of. Um, um, maintenance loans and for that you have to have a, a residual household income of less than 25,000 and that 
you know, for, to have such a significant number of our students reliant on those um, grants shows the, the impact, you know, when we've got inflation running at whatever it's going to be, 8%, that is going to have a massive impact on, on the student's ability to afford their basic living costs. And the whole student fee income, and I think this is pretty well accepted now, this, the, that, that whole debate has focused on, you know, the student fee and the loan, but that makes almost no difference to the students pound in their pocket if you like as they're studying and those costs accommodation costs are eye-watering she said with one of her one of her children at university um accommodation costs are high um if food and energy and transport costs are all going to rise as well we really need to be worried about these students that we don't push them into you know into even further into part-time work which impacts on their studies or if they've got care and responsibilities or if they've got other issues um you know their ability to to really engage with the education that we want to provide them with is going to be impacted by this and it is a worry hmm. dk obviously there's a, there's a mix here right there's you know, for, for, for a home domiciled student, there's the maintenance loan, there's money, as I say, there's money from part-time jobs, money from families, and potentially some support from a university. But it all feels very murky. I don't think anyone knows how much that ought to come to in total. I don't think anyone really has a sense of what the kind of respective responsibilities are of those four systems. I don't think there's been a proper kind of stand back and look at, you know, how much each of those kind of components should be putting in. And, and, and the more we go towards institutionally designed systems the less we've got a kind of proper kind of picture of 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 of, of how all of that should work yeah so i mean uh tv's um money saving expert martin uh, lewis has been campaigning on this for a long time and he's right to do so about the uh clarity of uh what uh student support is available and where it's meant to come from. As you say, it is incredibly uh, murky and that leads to situations like students that are the first in the family are sometimes incredibly surprised that they need to pay for student accommodation as well as their student uh, fees, that they need to pay for stuff like uh, field trips, that they need to pay for textbooks, um, or at least did, um, and all of these other costs. Um, yeah. As discussed in previous items, universities have stepped in here um, with the uh, the dwindling amount of money they get to do this kind of thing to support students. And what it looks like they've done from the uh, graphs in the piece, which hopefully will be out by the time you hear this, is uh, that they've tried to tailor the offer to individual students. So, I mean, rather than saying, okay, every student from this kind of background will get this kind of support... They've tried to speak to students individually and say, okay, this is the, the areas where you might be struggling. This is the support we can offer in that respect. It might be, um, um, an accommodation, uh, subsidy. It, uh, might be cash in hand to replace, um, a parental, uh, contribution, which is expected in the student finance model. But due to that, students' circumstances is not going to come. It, uh, could be any other number of, ways of supporting a particular student. But as you say, this is not transparent. So if you're a student, you're trying to decide which course to do at which university, you need to have a lot of quite in-depth conversations with universities in order to find out which one is going to offer the support 
that is going to make it easier for you to fulfill your academic potential and to enjoy the social and networking sides of universities. I mean, the assumption that less well-off students rely on uh, uh, part-time work has been there for ages, but there is a, a pile of research out there, and Wonky's published research on this, that if you are having to spend all of your free time working in a part-time job, then you are unlikely to be able to join clubs or societies, to get involved with student representation, to do all of the other things that students like to do while they are studying, which is a part of the university experience, which contributes to uh, the characteristics of what we see as a university graduate. So um, we do need, I think, to be clearer about the support that is on offer. The support that is on offer needs to be drastically uprated and resought. This is the uh, the missing chapter of the auger response. And we need to think seriously about how we expect students to live and eat and uh, do all the other things that they need to do and might um, reasonably expect to do while they are studying. Pete, one of the things I, uh, I, I've, I've reproduced on the on the site is um, the, the the answer that Michelle Donnellan gave to a um, written question on um, helping students through the cost of living crisis, um, where one the, her first bullet point is to trumpet, uh, look, I've frozen fees. This will save students money. But actually, ironically, if if there's if there's less fee income to redistribute into bursaries and hardship funds, that's worse for low income students because the tuition fee doesn't really matter to them. Absolutely. I mean, there's two really important points I want to make about this. One is if you look at the reasons why um, mental health difficulties occur in students, and uh, I would argue in employees, it's about financial uncertainty and financial worries. So this doesn't help at all, the, the kind of o- opaque nature. Um, however, there is a... Um, there has been quite a lot of work done on financial literacy in universities over the last few years. And, and OECD-wise, I think the UK, apart from Northern Ireland, are one of the worst countries in the world in terms of financial literacy in our young people. However, Black Bullion, which is a, a financial literacy provider of services, has recently partnered with the Bank of England and Pearson. And they've developed this um, this product called Black Bullion Futures, which may be a, a source of good information. Um, it doesn't just focus on universities. It also funks, it focuses on um, apprenticeships and FE provision. But it really gives you a sense of what um, is available, what you need to spend, etc. Uh, and, and it gives people the opportunity to make an informed decision. Because otherwise, I, th- I think we're going to see really significant impacts um, on newer students but, and on existing students, um, because there hasn't been that ability to to raise additional money through part-time work in the last couple of years. And if we loop back around to the original uh, thing we were talking about at the start of the podcast, that work experience element that employers are looking for rather than further study is a really important aspect of this. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, that, that kind of part-time work. I think it means, you know, internships um, and the ability to develop those skills um, in, in um, periods away from study. Helen, are there things that, you know, universities can do here on, on, on costs? So, you know, you know, I don't know, you, you, if you run the on-campus gym and you're trying to make next year's budget add up for your registrar, then I guess you might be tempted to stick your prices up or, 
you know, you might be tempted to not bother editing your reading list, leaving a load of first-in-the-family students to go and buy all the books unnecessarily. You know, are there things universities themselves could do to kind of bear down on costs, do you think, for students? I think most universities do a lot of that, and we, we review things like accommodation costs and, and food, the cost of food on campus, those sorts of things. Then, you know, they're not our... Um, eating outlets the shop and everything they're not you know they're not run for profit they're they're run in a way that that supports students um i think a lot i mean we're just looking at um we've been piloting providing uh, core textbooks through e-textbooks for, for all of our first years and we're rolling that out for second years next year so um i think universities are very mindful of this and and thinking of ways to support a lot of universities including chester employ a lot of our students we have a um a, a scheme where we we will employ our students to to work in you know in the uh, retail outlets local you know student ambassadors these sorts of things so we do um are very mindful of this and i think all universities think about those things when they're looking at costs so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via spotify apple or google podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organization ahead of everything going on in ukhe do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions so thanks very much to helen pete dk everyone at team wonky that makes the show happen and until next week stay wonky (laughs) 